Kids, I hope you have a wonderful time in the back. If you're remaining with us, I'd encourage you to turn uh, to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be reading uh, verses 25 to 37 from Luke chapter 10. We are uh, in the midst right now of a sermon series that we're calling The Unexpected Messiah. And what we're looking at is how in the Gospels, everybody had certain expectations of how the Messiah, the, the Son of God, would and should act as a person. But one of the things that we're, we see consistently throughout the gospel is despite all of these expectations, uh, Jesus rarely acted according to the script that those had around him. Instead, he always kept people on their toes. He always did things that were surprising. He kept people guessing. And one of the things that we're going to have seen and are going to see is that he does that still today. Just when we think, you and I, when we think in this life of faith that we've got Jesus all figured out, when we've got him pegged, he does something completely unexpected, and that's because he rarely acts according to our expectations. Uh, He rarely acts according to our script. Uh, If you were with us last week, we saw Jesus give equal attention to a man who was an influencer in his culture along with a woman who was an outcast in her culture. Yet both of them were united together in their desperation before Jesus, and by faith, they were healed of what their infirmity was uh, sort of capturing them in. This week, what I want us to see is, I want us to look at Jesus again in the presence of another cultural influencer. But what's so surprising about Jesus is that when he's in the presence of these folks, he doesn't pander towards the popular. Instead, he doesn't mind saying very surprising things, even at times offending people with the things that he said. And that's because Jesus was never afraid to let the truth have its day. And so as you read this, imagine being uh, invited to somebody who's really important, invited to their home for dinner. And you're very excited about this, and you're preparing yourself for it. You've scripted out everything that you're going to wear. You may have even thought about the things that you're going to say, the dinner table conversation, while you're across the table with this very, very important person, and you've scripted out what you're going to say. Why? Because you don't dare want to say anything that might offend them or upset them because they are a remarkably important person. You wouldn't want to cause any awkwardness. Well, as you'll see this morning, Jesus does the absolute opposite often when he's with someone of importance and influence. And we see that this morning in Luke chapter 10, and I'm going to be reading verses 25 to 37. This is God's word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and 
When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for its power. Thanks that that you are always willing to let the truth have its day. And so we pray that as we encounter your truth in your word, uh, that you would dispel the falsehoods that we tend to believe in and build our lives around. Instead, help us to have our hearts uh, enlightened and illumined to your truth that we may live more and more in your image, that we may center ourselves around the truth of the gospel more and more each day. It's only your spirit that can do that, so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come speak to our hearts now. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Our passage this morning is a a pretty familiar one. Um, You've probably heard it before. But there are actually two genres that are at play in our passage this morning that you see in multiple places all throughout the Gospels. And one of those genres is called, it's called a a controversy story or a conflict story. It's, It's pretty much the same thing. But you see this play out a lot in the Gospels. And this is when a person who is considered wise and educated Uh, in their culture, comes and tests another person, maybe somebody who is an up-and-coming teacher or an up-and-coming rabbi. And usually the attempt is to make the young teacher uh, feel a little foolish or feel a little small. Um, Maybe we can call it an ancient form of rabbinic hazing uh, that often happened uh, in this culture. Whenever I think of this genre and these events that happen, I always think about the old movie, The Princess Bride. Did anybody ever seen that movie, the old movie, The Princess Bride? There's this wonderful character in the movie called Ficini, and he knows that he can't best people through his strength and uh, his brawn, and so he knows the only thing he has to him is his intellect and his wit, and so he challenges the man in black to a test of the wits, to a test of the intellect, and of course, the man in black wins the contest. But of course, in each one of these, you see that the attempt is to make the other person feel small. And you see this happening to Jesus all throughout the Gospels. On numerous occasions, the the Jewish religious elite, they they would come to Jesus and they would ask him questions wanting to test him. They would ask him questions wanting to to trip him up or to back him into the corner, but Jesus consistently and constantly displays a superior wisdom which wound up shutting up his testers in the process. And so eventually what you even see is they just stopped asking him questions. 
because he kept winning these battle of wits. And so that's certainly what is happening in our passage this morning. It tells us that at verse 25 at the very beginning, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So we know what's happening here from the beginning. But also what you discover is that these controversy or conflict stories uh, get coupled with another genre that we see all throughout the Gospels, and that is the genre of a parable. Jesus here uses a parable in this battle of wits with this lawyer. And a parable, if you don't know, is just a a small fictional story uh, that often uses a simile or a metaphor in order to communicate the truth. And so Jesus constantly used parables as his method of teaching, often to the frustration of his disciples who were around him. There were many times they came to Jesus, why can't we talk more plainly here? Why, why do we always have to talk in these metaphors and assemblies and parables? But that's often what Jesus employed in his teaching. And this parable that Jesus used here is probably the best known parable of all of them. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, if you pay attention, there's a, there's a hospital here in Baltimore named after this parable, Good Samaritan Hospital. Uh, George W. Bush, in his inaugural address, referenced the Jericho Road, referencing this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we even have laws on the books in our country that are called Good Samaritan Laws. And so we're very familiar with this parable, but yet, in spite of our familiarity with it, it packs a serious punch that we don't often recognize, and it continues our theme of unexpected Messiah or the unexpected things the Messiah did. Whenever you come to a parable and you always want to figure out what what its meaning is or what Jesus is after, one of the clues to always look for is, is who is the audience that Jesus is speaking to when he gives this parable? And we know from the very beginning that we are, who Jesus's audience is. We're introduced to this lawyer And this lawyer is a member of the the Jewish religious elite of Jesus' day. And so we're told that this lawyer approaches Jesus, and he wants to talk about the law. The Jews would, would call this the Torah. And the Torah was the absolute most precious thing to the Jewish people and to the Jewish faith. And this lawyer is not a lawyer who deals in judicial matters. He's a religious lawyer. And so he dealt with religious laws and religious doctrine and religious matters, and he would spend his entire day, day in and day out, sort of arguing and wrestling with the implications of this law. And so he knew it well. He knew it inside and out. And so he knows that if he wants to trick Jesus, then he's going to stay in his area of expertise. Let's, let's trick Jesus by talking about the Torah, by talking about the law, and maybe we can trip Jesus up into saying something that is wrong here. And so he asked Jesus, Jesus, how do we inherit life eternal? How do we experience eternal reward? So they have this conversation back and forth, and They both agree on the essence of the law and on the essence of what it means to inherit eternal life. They agree that it all hangs on loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, 
and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So they agree that this is the essence of the law. This is what it means to inherit eternal life. But the lawyer's not done. He hasn't accomplished what he wants to accomplish here. And so it says, wanting to justify himself, he asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor? What are the limits, Jesus, on loving our neighbor or this neighbor thing? Help us with the boundaries. Help us with the limits. And so Jesus, instead of directly answering his question, launches into this parable, telling a story about an incident that happened on the Jericho Road. Now, the Jericho Road was an actual road. It was considered to be a very dangerous road that led up to the city of Jerusalem. They, they think it was probably 17 miles, and the city of Jerusalem sat about 2,500 feet above sea level, and so it would be a steep road and a steep climb that would level up into Jerusalem. If you read the Psalms, this is likely the road where pilgrims would sing the Psalms of Ascent as they approached Jerusalem for those religious festivals. But at points, the road became very dangerous. Um, there was sort of a rift valley on the Jericho Road, and in that rift, it was 800 feet below sea level, and there were sort of canyons on either side. And so this would make this road incredibly dangerous because people would be exposed and they could be easily robbed and beaten by criminals. And that's exactly what happens in our story to a man we never get his name. He's unnamed throughout the story, but that's exactly what happens to him. It says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, for the Jews, this would not be surprising. This sort of happened all the time. But what Jesus says next is what makes this story very, very interesting and biting in some ways. Because Jesus tells a story about two men that come traveling down the road. One is a priest and the other is a Levite. Now, if you don't know the background, you might miss the real sting of this story and these two characters. Because these two men are a part of the Jewish religious elite. They were from the same tribe that this lawyer would be from. This lawyer could have easily been a priest and or a Levite. And so these two men come walking down the road. They see the man suffering. They recognize that the man is suffering, but they just keep walking. Now, the million-dollar question is why did they pass by? Why did they just pass by? They both saw him. They both recognized the situation. They probably had empathy for this man who was lying half dead on the side of the road in his difficult situation, but why did they pass by? Jesus doesn't tell us. We can sort of speculate. Maybe they were just too busy to stop. Maybe they believed it wasn't their job and that somebody else would come along the road and do it after them and maybe even do it better than they would. Maybe they were worried about being deemed ceremonially unclean in the temple because of their contact with a bloodied and half-dead body. Maybe it was their religiosity that kept them from assisting this man. Maybe they were frightened. Maybe they were worried about their own neck, right? This is, 
After all, not a really good part of town. And if we stop and linger here too long, maybe the same thing will happen to us that happened to this man. Maybe they believed that they had more pressing things, more important items on their agenda for the day. Either way, these two men, the priest and the Levite, they become the villains of the story. Not the robbers, not the criminals who jumped this poor man. These two men, the priest and the Levite, they become the villains of the story. The members of this lawyer's own tribe were the ones who refused to show compassion. But the story gets better. As if this indictment is is not enough, Jesus sort of turns the screws a little more in the conversation because he introduces us to a Samaritan who is traveling down the road. Now, Samaritans, at least for the Jews in the ancient world, were not their favorite people, to say the least. The Samaritans were considered to be half-breeds by the Jews, people who had mixed bloodlines, And because of that, they were sort of societal and religious outcasts, according to the Jews. In fact, the Jewish people so disliked the Samaritans that when they traveled in the ancient world, they would travel around the region of Samaria. Even though it was a much longer trip, they would travel around the region of Samaria because they wouldn't want to come in contact with those filthy Samaritans. They wouldn't want to risk their own uncleanliness. So the the Samaritans were in every way the untouchables to the Jewish people. They hated the Samaritans and every single thing about them. And yet, what does Jesus do? Jesus steps in and he makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. The Samaritan becomes the hero. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was And when he saw him, he had compassion. The Samaritan's compassion here is over the top. We don't often realize it because we don't understand that culture, but it it is over the top. He binds up his wounds. He sets him on his animal, verse 34. Despite all the danger that is around him, despite being in a rough part of town, he decides to engage in the issue rather than walk by. He takes him to an inn. He cares for him the entire evening with oil and wine. Talk about an interruption to one's schedule. He does this all day long. At his departure the next day, he leaves two days of wage, two denarii. So imagine what you make in two days of work. That's what this man leaves behind to cover the cost of this person who's been injured. And to to make matters even more extreme, he leaves an open-ended financial obligation to the inn owner about this man's care, and that inn owner could have clearly taken advantage of the situation. And the Samaritan even seems to do this, making no plans for reciprocity, making no plans to have any of this debt paid back whatsoever. His compassion is boundless. It is radically compassionate and risky, even in its generosity. And in so doing, the Samaritan becomes the hero of the story. Jesus, at the end, puts the question back to the lawyer. And he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, 
the one who showed mercy. The Jew can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He's so upset, and yet he must concede that the one who showed him mercy is the hero of the story. Who is the one who embodied the law of God? It wasn't the religious Jew, but it was the dreaded and the hated Samaritan. See how unexpected Jesus was? See how unexpected his stories were? How he kept people guessing, how he kept them on their toes. Now, what about you and I? Whenever we think about this passage, what are, what are sort of the implications? What should, how should we respond to a passage like this? And I, I think it's pretty clear there's probably some very practical implications to a story like this, but there's also some spiritual implications as well. The practical implications, I think, are very clear even though they are radical. They're clear even though they are radical. Because Jesus at the very end looks at the lawyer as he does to us as well. And he says, you go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. You see, as God's people, we are to pursue the law of God just as anybody else. And that law reflects the the character of God. It reflects the way God wants us to live. And so Jesus's point is very clear here, that the law of God drives us to be radically generous with our compassion, even if it means putting ourselves at great risk. In effect, this is what it means for us to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and all of our strength. And in so doing, what Jesus does is he says that this sort of risky compassion and generosity is an outworking of the law. It's geared towards our neighbor, but Jesus even wants to broaden what that definition of neighbor is really all about. See, friends, it's very easy for us to be gracious and generous to those people who look like us and who agree with us. It's really easy to be generous with people when we know reciprocity is right around the corner. We're going to get a payback for this later on. It's easy to love our family. It's easy to love our friends. It's easy at times to be very self-giving towards them. It's easy to love within proper boundaries and within limitations. But what about our enemies? What about our enemies? See, the love of God doesn't just pursue our friends and our families and our coworkers, those people we like. The love of God pursues even after our enemies. You see, friends, this is so different than the world around us. It subverts the system of the world around us just like it did in Jesus' day. One commentator said the lawyer and his tribe epitomized a worldview of tribal consciousness concerned with relative status and us and them cataloging. Don't we fall into that too? Us and them cataloging. And yet the gospel comes in and it subverts all of it. It turns it upside down on its head. The gospel never minimizes the law of God. It never minimizes it. But instead, it only highlights it. It magnifies us. It it, it reminds us that our passion for God and our passion even for his law is meaningless unless it translates into radical and risky generosity even for 
our enemies. We can be passionate for God, we can be passionate for his law, but if it doesn't translate into radical and risky generosity, even for our enemies, does it really mean anything at the end of the day? One commentator said, neighborliness comes in all shapes and in all society, sizes. It is limited only by our failure to see, to feel, and to respond. What's the point of this passage? The point is there are no limits on love. There are no limits on love. So the question it leaves us to, the very practical question is, who might God be calling you to love? What might be the risky love for you? Risky in its generosity, risky in its compassion, and the answer might even be surprising at the end of the day. So there's amazing practical implications here, but we cannot walk away without first thinking or finally thinking about the beautiful spiritual implications behind this story as well. And that brings us back to the very message of the gospel, which teaches us this. It teaches us that you and I, we were God's enemies. Our sin had done that to us. We were God's enemies. Because of that, we were the ones that were left spiritually dead, lying on the side of the road, just like this unnamed man. But Jesus came along. Jesus saw, he felt, and he responded. He saw, he felt, and he responded. And what that means is that in Jesus, you who were his enemies are now treated as his neighbor. All of this was accomplished because Jesus himself was stripped and beaten and left for dead. He risked everything. He gave everything so that you, his enemy, could be made his friend. Friends, this is how we inherit eternal life. Friends, if you are in Christ, if by faith you've placed your faith in him, then you've received the overwhelming compassion and generous love of a Savior whom you have deeply offended. He saw you when you were helpless. He bound up your wounds. He paid for your healing with his very own blood. But know that he then commissions us out to love others radically to be open-handedly generous, even to our worst of enemies. Let's pray.